you join me in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to sing praises to you in that way. And as we prayed before the service, some of us, we thank you that this is a rehearsal for some of those grand moments in heaven when the praise that will be offered to you, as we'll see tonight by angels, we're going to see others who've been martyred, the raptured church, along with those in heaven, others who are going to be there, the four living creatures. It's just going to get bigger and better and louder and more and more raucous as everyone is joining in praise to you. Thank you that you've given us a little preview of that tonight in your word and help us to be able to rejoice in it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a little bit of a lull in our study of the book of the Revelation, a little bit of a lull because the wrath of the Lamb is not going to be acted out on anybody tonight. You may recall that at the end of chapter 6, after there is a terrible reaction from all of the people on the earth who were apart from the Lord and asking for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath had come. There were seven seal judgments then that had taken, or excuse me, six that had taken place at that point. And then the question, and who can stand? Well, who can stand is those who are on the right side, those who are on the side of the Lamb and on the one seated on the throne. So when we come to chapter 7, we see two groups of individuals who are mentioned. First of all is 144,000 sealed 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, at least the tribes that are mentioned here. And we went into that last, last week as there were a couple of them who were, who were missing. And we saw the reason for that. And then tonight we're going to look at the second group that is there. There are some who teach and some who believe that this is all the same group. These are all the same people. There's only one group. And I think we'll see as we go through here, clearly these are two different groupings of individuals who are mentioned. And we'll pick up our reading in verse 9 now of Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to be seeing salvation in the tribulation period. So verse 9, After this I, and that I being the apostle John, looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now you may recall at the end of chapter 6, it was the one seated on the throne and it was the Lamb. It was wrath. Here it's salvation. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of them... Now, how odd is this? The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. How, how's that for, for something highly, highly unusual? The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Will anyone get saved during the tribulation? It's a question that is often raised. If so, how can that be if the Holy Spirit is the restrainer holding back evil of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and he's taken out of the world at the time of the rapture? How's anybody going to get saved if the Holy Spirit's not in the world? What happens to people who get saved during the tribulation? Well, the answers to these and other important questions are right before us here in Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 7 has been called the mercy chapter in the book of the Revelation. We've described this chapter as a lull in the seal judgments, a parenthesis, breaking into the sequential action to fill us in on some things that are happening during the sequence of events. And it will even take us beyond where we are now in the chronology. It will take us toward the end. We'll be seeing some things that are happening. This is not in chronological sequence exactly as are each of the judgments. Six seal judgments, as I mentioned, have taken place already. And now before the seventh is the interlude of chapter seven. Four angels who had been given power to harm the earth are told to hold back the winds of judgment. Why? Because 144,000 special servants of God had to have God's seal placed on their foreheads. That's a seal of identification, of ownership, of protection. And what a great thing in the midst of all the chaos going on on the earth to have God's seal of this identification and protection for them. They will be preserved, we believe, through the entire tribulation period. And we take it literally, as you look again back at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, if God wanted us to think these were anything other than Jews, Why would he have put it this way? 12,000 from each tribe, and it's repetitive. It goes on and on. There are the 12,000 Israelites from each of the 12 tribes, and the indication from Revelation chapter 14 is that there will be men, and there will not be one Gentile among them. We infer from the context, and I use that word infer emphatically, but we infer because we're not really told We infer from the context that their role in the tribulation is going to be to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with others. They will, in other words, be witnesses. And the inference is if they are, according to this context, if they are going to be witnesses, and then when we pick up in verse 9, there are a whole lot of people getting saved during the tribulation, they're going to be great witnesses. You may recall that we quoted some individuals last week, some saying, can you imagine that this is going to be 144,000 Billy Grahams loose on the earth? Or this is going to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls. These are going to be individuals who, sealed by God, given his protection, are going to be doing a great job because somehow or another, 
A lot of people are going to be saved during the tribulation. God has other ways of doing that. There's an angel. We'll find out about him a little bit later on that's going around and other things. But we believe these 144,000 are special servants of God, sealed for a purpose. And we understand that we're saved to tell others. And that's the way that it should be with everyone. We see God's mercy in blessing these 144,000 and then through them to countless others. We see God's mercy in that the people of Israel had failed him in the past. It was through the Jews that all of the world was to be blessed, but they dropped that ball. But God is merciful. He gives them yet another chance to be his chosen channels through whom the world will be blessed and they themselves will be blessed. We see more mercy in the chapter in that a large number of people will get saved in the tribulation. In his wrath, as we saw last week, God still remembers mercy. And that's his pattern all through the scriptures. We're going to look first then at salvation of this great multitude that we just read about in verses 9 and 10 in particular. And here's the question. Who are these people that we're introduced to in verse 9? Who are they? Remember the apostle John looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And then it says from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. That incidentally is the first indication that these are not the same group that began chapter seven because these are from everywhere, not just Jews. Who are these people? This great multitude that no one could count. So first of all, keep this in your mind, that this is a group that goes way, way beyond anything that anybody wants to try to count. And in spite of intense judgment, it's comforting to see by the size of the crowd that God's mercy is abundant because all of these individuals are going to be the recipients of God's mercy. And again, they were from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, we could say from every people group on earth, there were people who were going to be there. Now that's very interesting because not every people group has heard the gospel yet. That's something that Wycliffe Bible translators and other mission organizations are telling us. They're working on it. They're trying to get God's word into every language. They're trying to get the the message of God to everyone. Hasn't happened yet. And we'll bring that up again a little bit later in another context. I believe that this is going to include both Jews and Gentiles. If you read a lot of commentaries, you'll see a number of people say this is Gentiles. It was Jews earlier in the chapter, but now these are Gentiles. I don't know how we can say that, though, if they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's got to include Jews. 144,000 sealed Jews is the number that were sealed, not saved. There are more Jews who are going to be saved than sealed during this time. Otherwise, they wouldn't be people here coming from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Here's what one of the writers has said. There have been many times of great response to the gospel throughout history, including the church's birth on the day of Pentecost, the Reformation in Europe in the 16th century, and the great awakening in America in the 18th century, During those powerful movements of God's saving grace, thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ. But there is coming in the future a worldwide response to the gospel that will far exceed any other in history and maybe all others combined. It will sweep the globe in just a few short years and produce a vast multitude of redeemed people from all the nations 
making it the greatest movement of God's saving power the world will ever see. And that's what's described in the scripture in front of us tonight. Is there any significance to the white robes in verse 9? You can remember as we read them, this huge amount of people from every nation clothed, it says, in white robes. Any significance to that? Turn back to chapter 6. Some of you may not even have to turn a page, but chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. You remember this was at the time of the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Significance of the white robes, they were martyrs in chapter 6 and we believe clearly they are martyrs now. These are the ones who are now joined together. The ones who are waiting to be joined by the rest of them, they're being joined now at this particular time. Same robes worn by the martyrs in chapter 6. They had waited a little longer, been joined now by their fellow martyrs. If we were to take time, and we won't do this tonight, but in chapter 19, verse 8, it's talking about the marriage feast. It's talking about the bride, talking about the righteous acts of the saints being involved in the robe that is being worn, and the bride is going to be lucos or dazzling white, just like the description here, those brilliant, shining white robes. Uh, I often will joke with, usually it's our secretaries, they ask me how a wedding went, and I said it was, I always say the same thing, it was a lovely wedding and the bride was radiant. Um, Judy asked me about this bride that is mentioned here, I'll tell you the same thing, the bride is going to be dazzlingly radiant. Uh, and that's, that's the picture that we get in chapter 19. But the, the white robes are signifying the fact that these are the righteous acts of the saints, this is the righteousness given to them, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any significance to the palm branches in verse 9 as well? Well, they were holding palm branches in their hands. We see palm branches used throughout the Scripture during times of celebration. There's a hint here of ultimate victory. Palm branches were waved before a conquering king. Remember the triumphal entry? You remember what we call that? When we don't call it the triumphal entry, it was Palm Sunday. It was the waving of the palms before the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus onto the planet here. So that's why the palm branches are very significant. Why are these people so excited? If you look back again to verse 10, these people are really excited because they're crying out with a loud voice, and they're crying out about salvation, and that salvation belonging to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So according to verse 10, these people were appreciating their salvation. They knew from whence it had come. They cried out in a loud voice. And I believe I mentioned this once before, but cried out is used 21 times in the book of Revelation. It's a loud, deafening victory cry. They appreciated their salvation. Don't you think it's a shame that the only time people get excited, it seems to be at athletic events? 
uh, they're going to get real excited here, and it's not going to be an athletic event. They're going to cry out with this huge voice. How do we know for sure they were martyrs? Well, verse 13. We've already seen white robes, and that, that's one indication. But verse 13 anticipates our curiosity, as it did John's, as to those who were in that multitude. One of the elders asks and then answers a question. He knew the answer, but he just wanted to, to provoke the curiosity further. Who are they and where did they come from? And the answer came back in verse 14 from the elder. There's no question who these people are once we look at that and where they came from. They are converts, one to the Messiah, and again, as we infer, possibly largely due to the witness of the 144,000 Israelites, and also however else God chooses to do that. But people will be saved on earth during the tribulation and martyred, and there will be lots of them. And they will not be those who have been raptured. The people who are being raptured are not the same people who are the martyrs. I don't want to get too technical, but in the Greek language, erkomai is the Greek word for coming out of. Coming out of that tribulation is present durative, present durative participle. It gives the idea that it's a prolonged process, not a once-for-all event like the rapture would have been. So there are people who have been coming out of the tribulation. They're gathering here together, and they're joining what we believe to be the church in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, as we've mentioned other times. So definitely martyrs. Um, There are other questions that these verses answer, several that are often asked And let's tackle them one at a time. First of all, we've already answered, will anyone be saved after the tribulation begins? Obviously, the answer to that is yes. And especially if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, if you believe that is correct, there are going to be a lot of people getting saved after the tribulation uh, because the believers are not moving into the tribulation, being martyred, and then going on. They're being raptured. These are people that are getting saved afterwards. So if you're a pre-tribulation rapturist, you'll conclude that the work of the 144 witnesses has been very effective. Many brand new tribulation converts have responded to God's mercy and God's grace and the supernatural power that God has done in sealing these 144,000. Now, if you believe that there is a second chance for people to be saved during the tribulation, even if they've rejected Christ prior to that, your argument is strengthened by the sheer weight of numbers of people who are getting saved. But there are those who believe, based on Second Thessalonians, that people are believing a lie. There's a strong delusion that will come on them, and that people who have rejected Christ on this side of the rapture will not receive him afterwards. It will only be people getting saved who are, at that particular time, coming to Christ, but... They had never rejected him beforehand. They had never had an opportunity. So if you believe there will be no second chance for people to be saved during the tribulation if they've rejected Christ prior to the rapture, you're still going to see countless numbers of people who are responding to the gospel message who never previously heard the gospel and rejected it. There are unreached people all over the planet So we're not seeing evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians agreed on that, whether you get a second chance 
to receive Christ after the rapture if you've rejected him the first time. Uh, They're not in agreement, but what we're all in agreement is there will be many saints who will be martyred during the tribulation period. Many who will be saved, many who will be martyred. How can people be saved if the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, as Second Thessalonians says will happen if he is the one who's restraining, who's holding back that evil until that time? Well, the Holy Spirit is removed from the world in the same way that he came on Pentecost. That doesn't mean he was never around before Pentecost, but he came in a different way. He came so that he could indwell believers, the church. And then when the church leaves, the Holy Spirit leaves in that sense. But people were saved before he came the first time. People are going to be saved afterwards. His work continues. He's omnipresent. He's always been in the world. He was there at creation and before creation. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering there on the face of the deep. We read all the way back in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit is still going to be around convicting people, but not indwelling the church because the church is going to be already in heaven at that point. Another question, is it true that the church cannot be raptured until the entire world has heard the gospel? Turn with me to Matthew 24, please. Matthew 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, 14, the middle of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and as he's speaking about some of the things that are happening at verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There are some who believe that until the proclamation of the gospel is everywhere to every nation, every tribe, that the end will not come. So if that's the case, Jesus will not be coming back imminently. He couldn't come back right now while there are still those who have never heard. So that question, is it true that the church cannot be raptured until the entire world has heard the gospel? Uh, My answer would be no, that is not true because the rapture is not the end that is referred to here. Verses 9 and 10 indicate that during the tribulation, the entire world will have heard, but they will have that opportunity during the tribulation. There will be worldwide preaching during the tribulation. People will be getting saved from every people group in our world. We're commanded to take the gospel worldwide today, but we don't have to get the gospel to every tribal group, dialect, and linguistic entity before Jesus comes. Revelation 14, 6 indicates also that during this period of time, everybody will have heard, and this has to do with a, an angel who's flying around the entire world giving out the eternal gospel. That's in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. There is a whole lot in Scripture that tells us that Jesus could come back at any moment. His return is imminent. It is not dependent on anything else happening. We don't have to wait for everybody on the planet to hear before Jesus comes back again. Another question that comes up, what are these martyred saints doing what are they doing well, let me ask you are they whining saying it's not fair what happened to us is that what's going on are they complaining because they lost their lives are they bemoaning the fact that their lives were cut short 
No, actually, they're showing us that death is no real big deal on that side. Neither is suffering. That's not something for them that it is to us. And so we understand what's going to be going on there. What's going to be going on, if you look at verses 15 through 17, it says they're serving the Lord there in heaven. It's from a word latruo, from which we also sometimes translate it worship. They're going to be worshiping, serving the Lord. They're not going to be whining. They're not going to be complaining. They're not going to be bemoaning their fate. They're not going to be saying, why us? Why did we have to be martyred like this? That was awful back there. They're not thinking about any of that. They're thinking about what's there, what's present, and they're honoring the Savior. They're not just playing a harp either. Um, They're worshiping him. They're serving him night and day, and they are at the mercy of a creative God to make heaven everything that it's supposed to be. Sometimes people say, I don't want to go there and play a harp for all of eternity. Uh, Can you imagine the creative God of this universe and you look around this universe and you see all that he's made? Do you think we're going to be bored in heaven? I don't think we're ever conceivably going to be bored in heaven. So they're going to be serving the Lord. They're going to be doing some work. That's not a curse. They'll be enjoying him forever and everything that he has for us in heaven much of which he's never disclosed to us, probably because we couldn't even begin to understand it. We would have no way of understanding the great things that he has for us there in heaven. In ancient times, we see the um, an idea of what it is specifically that they're going to be enjoying there in heaven. Because in ancient times, the prospective wife was invited to the tent of her husband not just to consummate the wedding, but to declare that she's now his wife. It was part of the great celebration. And we see now what they're going to be enjoying in heaven. Part of that is no more lack of shelter or security. If you look at verse 11, notice where we will be if we are truly the elders representing the church. We're going to be before the throne of God, sheltered, it says, with his presence. No more lack of shelter or security. That's why these people are enjoying Uh, what God has for them. Um, The NIV says that we're going to be under his tent. We're going to be under his protection, just like the bride used to be at a Jewish wedding. Look at verse 16. 